The story of what happened to Raw Pressery is like trying to solve a complicated puzzle. Raw Pressery is a company that manufactures and sells packaged juice in India. And not just any juice, but cold pressed juice. You may have not heard of it, but it has somewhat of a cult following. It was a pioneer, it's premium. And if you've tried it, like I have, the juice is actually pretty good. Good puzzles always have a clear starting point. In our story, this was one year ago, when Raw Pressery was flying high. It was making over a million dollars a month in revenue and was looking to raise another $3 million to fund its expansion. It looked like nothing could stop Raw Pressery. Massive FMCG companies like ITC and Dabar had lined up to fund and help Raw Pressery succeed. But puzzles also have a destination. The story of Raw Pressery came to an abrupt end last month when it was sold to Wingreens, a small company that's mostly known for making dips and sauces. To add insult to injury, Raw Pressery was brought at a price that was just a fifth of what it was valued two years ago. Investors who had offered money to Raw Pressery earlier had changed their mind. This wasn't any ordinary acquisition. It was a fire sale made under desperate circumstances so that Raw Pressery's investors could get something, anything for their investment. At this point, you may ask, how did one of India's beloved premium consumer companies get here? And what lessons exist for other companies like it? Hello and welcome to Unofficial Sources, a business podcast by The Ken. I'm Anushka Chikara. And I'm Olana Banerjee. And we're your hosts. In our first segment, we discuss the rise and fall of Raw Pressery, a premium beverage FMCG company. And this is also a pretty special episode because in our second segment, we have our very first guest on the show, Nitin Pai of Takshashila Institute, who is going to chat with us about Atmanirbhar apps, vaccines, and a lot more. Stay tuned. Before we get into what happened to Raw Pressery, we need to go back to the beginning, back to 2014. An investment banker suddenly started making juices at his home in Mumbai on the weekends. That's how Anuj Rakyan, the founder and CEO of Raw Pressery, got started. I like operations and I like building brands. And um, I think the, the focus has always been on trying to organize the unorganized markets. Anush has zero experience in entrepreneurship or in food sciences. His knowledge of health and nutrition is completely self-taught. One day, Anuj realized that he wanted some fresh juice and none of the existing brands in the market served him. So he decided to make his own. He has spoken about how in the early days, he'd wake up at four every morning to bring the most fresh vegetables and fruits to make juices and hand deliver them to customers. It was a race against time because these juices needed to stay absolutely fresh or the bacteria would set in. The first distribution system he used was Dabbawalas in the city of Mumbai. So the word Dabbawala literally means the one with the box. They go around the city and deliver fresh food in boxes to thousands of people day in and day out. What Anuj was trying to do was unique. 
he was trying to organize the fruit juice economy. The scrappy initiative was a big hit, but to scale a business, the company needed to change the way they sold their juices. And so they did. Rapresi also wanted to get serious with their manufacturing and distribution systems. So they started selling through premium stores like Godrej's Nature Basket and Food Hall. That's our colleague Bhumika. Um Bhumika covers e-commerce, consumer internet and everything startup. She's been following the Rapresi story quite closely. And as they grew, a cold press was added to increase production and product shelf life. Cold pressing basically helps increase the shelf life of the juice to 21 days. They did well enough to even launch their own subscription scheme. So, Bhumika, I'm on their website right now. They have quite a lot of products like protein shakes, almond milk, coconut water, a lot more than just juices. Yeah, exactly. So, premium juices offer strong margin, but the market is overwhelmingly small. And to grow the business, this customer base isn't enough. To expand its revenue channels and improve cost, Rapresi expanded into products which don't require cold storage, and these are the ones you are looking at the website. And I read in your story that they raised forty million dollars from big investors like Sequoia. So why did Rapresi appeal so much to investors? So Rapresi came in at the time when Indian consumers wanted better quality products and were ready to pay for it. and that really clicked with investors who were predicting the market is going to succeed and it did grow today there is a niche market for all types of premium products from socks to butter to juices and their growth has also been evident looking at their revenues from 15 crore rupees in financial year 2017 to 72 crore in 2020 rapresti is doing really well with its customers rapresti Really is a hit with its target segment. Olena and I called up friends and work colleagues to find out what Raw Pressery's recipe has gotten right and why they like it so much. So first I spoke to my brother Abhinav because only after we started this story did I realize that there are a bunch of recycled Raw Pressery bottles sitting around in my house. Longest time the only real alternative was real fruit juice the brand real and personally it didn't sit right with me buying that as a habit because it just got so much sugar um didn't feel natural at all and the other alternative was then buying local fruit juice at local shops so with raw pressery the thing that i really liked was their 1 liter bottles with which you could get cold pressed let's say mango juice and it lasts a week you don't really feel bad about buying the tiny bottles and that's what i loved the most about it Then our colleague Durga had something to add about her experience with Raw Pressery's products. So the uh, Raw Pressery products that I like, I mean, I usually buy uh, the coconut water uh, quite often, and uh, I have a lot of love for the sugarcane juice as well. The reason I I like this better is because uh, <laughs> it's a very it's a nostalgia reason for me because uh, my mother is Malayali, so one grew up with. a lot of coconut water in the house and of course she will be appalled when she hears that i have it in a packaged container but uh, it's still better than nothing and it does not taste unnatural so there is a certain amount of like authenticity to it which is which is i think what uh, makes one want to drink it um yes raw pressery is very expensive 
uh, I I agree there, and they are overpriced even for sugar cane. And I mean, if you think about sugar cane juice, you go to the local uh, juice shop, you get it for twenty rupees, and here you're buying a two hundred rupee bottle for one liter, right? Which is very expensive, but uh, it's the convenience factor. And finally, Olena spoke to Maitri, a fellow writer here at the Ken, about what draws her to raw pressery. Hi. In terms of raw pressery, I really like the green juice, which is a mix of apple, cucumber, kale, and other ingredients. And even the mix of strawberry and pomegranate juice is really good. I also love their Valencia orange juice. I like them over others because I haven't found an equivalent of what raw pressery does. in terms of their juice combos also i find other juice brands use extra sugar sweeteners or they are not at par in terms of freshness of the product that they offer but i do think that raw pressery is an expensive brand it is steep to pay rupees 150 for a 250 ml pack of their premium mix and uh, so i do not consume their juices as often as i'd like because it's not affordable Now we know at this point that raw pressery has been a big hit in the niche market that it found and along with loyal customers it also has quite a lot of cult following. So what went wrong? Cold chain is a tricky business. India has struggled with limited infrastructure so far and so raw pressery built its own network from ground up. Transportation to warehouse which all becomes very costly. A non cold chain product cost rupees 1 per bottle for transport from mumbai to delhi in the case of raw pressery the cold pressed juice would cost around rupees 6 per bottle right so it's a tricky supply chain with a lot of nuances exactly and then besides transportation if you're stocking in physical stores you have to constantly keep supplying your stock to them it's a balancing act of sorts knowing just how many units to supply to the store how much is getting sold what is unsold inventory and also factor in shelf space cost and prominence and also raw pressery's usp is that it's fresh so it tightens the timeline of its products because they go bad after 21 days that's a problem that a lot of fmcg brands face right figuring out supply and demand is that the sole reason that raw pressery got into trouble A senior executive involved in the acquisition said that this wasn't the main problem for them. He also said that investors lost patience in the management team because they were not able to scale operationally. There was overhiring, high burn and expansion that was too fast. In my other conversations, it became clear that the company had around 120 employees, which addresses overhiring concerns. The burn and expansion is a sore experience though. A lot of this had to do with how expensive distribution had become for raw pressery. Okay, so it seems like their problems are just getting worse. But I I still have the same question. Uh, raw pressery isn't the first FMCG brand to face these problems. Don't all companies go through issues like this? Yeah, all FMCG companies face these problems, and the only way to move forward is to ride it out and find different ways of solving these problems. which is what raw pressery was doing and then the pandemic hit
In two months of lockdown since March 2020, Rob Presley lost 10 to 12 crores in unsold inventory. Premium stores and airports, their main delivery channels, were shut down across the country. But as soon as lockdown conditions eased in India, they were back to almost 60% of pre-COVID sales by June 2020. That doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, the pandemic was one thorn, but the larger issue was that they didn't have cash. The investors had backed down when they desperately needed a cash infusion. The board was rejecting every deal that came up. It soon became clear that the board was looking for a familiar face to take over the reins. Right, and that's when the Sequoia Wingreens deal came to bail them out, right? Yes. But why did they choose Wingreen specifically when there was interest from other investors? So both Ropresti and Wingreens are premium FMCG brands with several synergies. Wingreens also deals with relatively fresh products like dips and sauces that have a limited shelf life. That's to say they also understand how a cold chain operates. And Wingreens was also beginning to branch out during the pandemic. They wanted to become a food and beverage company. So Raw Presley's products fit in very well to the product portfolio. We've now understood the story of Raw Presley, a premium consumer brand that started off with the intent of solving a key but somewhat niche problem of making fresh juices available to elite urban India. It didn't work out and fell in quite a spectacular manner. While Raw Presley may have made some mistakes, I think it's fair to say that most of these aren't really their fault. Raw Presley would have been fine if not for the pandemic. I kind of agree. It's a lot of what-ifs. What if the pandemic hadn't come along? Or what if the company started fundraising earlier? Or what if the investors didn't leave them out to try? There are n number of things that could have gone right, but they didn't. So the pandemic was disguised as the final nail in the coffin. There have been several companies who have been doing bold, experimental things, as they should. And what the pandemic has done is expose those companies to a black swan event and twisted the knife in. The ones who have played it safe have survived, but it has also punished the risk takers. Raw Presley isn't the first, and it won't be the last company in this regard. And for me, that's a little worrying. We'll be back after the break. Hi, Manan here. I'm the product manager here at The Ken. I hope you're enjoying listening to this free and open podcast that we've put together for you. But did you know that you can listen to the latest episode of Unofficial Sources a full three days before everyone else? That's one of the benefits that subscribers of The Ken enjoy. You also get access to a daily story and a newsletter that help you understand not just the what, but also the why and what next. And you can read and listen to all of it on your subscriber-only app. Doesn't that sound great? Don't miss out. Claim your special limited period offer at theken.com slash podcast offer. That's the-ken.com slash podcast offer. Thanks for listening. Hi, welcome back to Unofficial Sources. You are now joining us in the still unnamed segment two, where we pick up important business stories from the week that merit a more nuanced discussion with experts that I bring in here. And we find a theme that emerges from what's going on in the business world. 
This week, I'm back in Bangalore and the people I've pulled into the studio are first Rohin, the co-founder and CEO of The Ken. Hi, Anushka. Then we have PGK, who writes our weekly newsletter, The Nutgraph, joining us once again here. Hey, Anushka. Nice to be here. And we have Olina, who, of course, you recognize as the co-host. She also reports and writes on edtech and mobility for The Ken. Hey, Olina. Hey, Anushka. Excited to finally be part of the second segment. Right. And also this segment is special because for the first time ever, we have a guest. We have have Nitin Pai here and he's a co-founder and director of Takshashila, an independent center for research and education in public policy in India. He researches and teaches a range of topics, including geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific, defense economics and the politics of radically networked societies in India. That last bit I just mentioned is why he's here, because we're going to discuss things like India's Atmanirbhar apps and also vaccination strategy, something that Takshashila has already done a lot of research on, all of which I'm sure we'll cover. Hey, Nitin, welcome to the studio. Hi, Anushka. Thank you for having me. So against all odds, it seems that India's Atmanirbhar strategy actually seems to be working. For a lot of time, there was skepticism, but now we're seeing that millions of users are coming in, millions of dollars of funding as well. There are a bunch of things happening. So given these pieces of news floating around, I want to throw this question out to you guys. Is India's Atmanirbhar's app strategy actually starting to work? Uh, Hey, Anushka, thanks for this. Uh, This is extremely interesting because... I think the success started last year when one of India's most popular Atmanirbhar apps raised $20 billion. (laughs) Can anyone tell me which that Atmanirbhar app was? Uh, Let me guess. Uh, Starts with uh, J. Ends in O. (laughs) That's right. Geo raised $20 billion from Google, Facebook, Intel, Qualcomm, private equity funds, right? And that was really the original Atmanirbhar app. But but subsequently, and and we've been quite skeptical of this strategy because of course like you know we we didn't see how this would fit in but it looks like google is investing hundreds of millions of dollars in apps it looks like new apps are like signing up users like you know ku signed up 3 million users uh, snapchat has licensed its filters to merge daily hunt is raising money chingari is said to be raising money it looks like it's really working is it See, I think, uh, you know, it's early days yet because capital probably uh, is flowing into India for a variety of reasons and Atmanirbhar might not be the only reason, right? So just the capital flows, I would not see as an indication of Atmanirbhar strategy. What is interesting is that to the extent that you have apps that can uh, make the market a lot more competitive, like in social media or in video sharing, I think it's good for the consumer. It's good for the market. And uh, uh, we don't know how far it will succeed. But at least the beginning is nice. It's good to see this happen. Uh, whether it's happened because of uh, state policy, because of the pandemic, we don't, or because of capital flows, uh, you know, people having money looking for good places to invest. We don't know. But to the extent that it's happening, it's good. Nitin, I'm waiting for a but. Okay, but... <laughs> no, no, the, the but really is this, right? Uh, 
you know, I'll quote Tagore here. He says, where knowledge is free mm. and the world has not been broken up into fragments by narrow domestic walls. And I think that's a very nice poem for the information economy. Mm. The marketplace is global. Right? Mm. Your audience is global. So any strategy that looks to dominate a market, even as big a market as India, still is going to be limited because the world is a much bigger place. Right? And I, another thing I want to quote here is this guy Chamat, right? mm. one of the co-founders of Facebook. Many years ago, I remember him saying that not having a mental model is the starting point of greatness. Right? You can't create a great company or a great app if you have a mo mental model that you're copying. You know, if you're the X of India, you know, if you're the Facebook of India, you're the TikTok of India, you're copying something and therefore you never can be great. So that's his view. And I agree with it to some extent, right? So you will never be able to create great products and become a massive global player if you, you know, are comfortable in your own comfortable zone, which is protected from foreign competition. If, if I may argue the first point, I mean, okay, I take your second point, but that is exactly what China has done. And I think there is a great demonstrable example that is just north of the Himalayas that says that you can build apps for one country and one country alone. And you don't need to build apps for the global two economy. Two problems with that, right? One is we are not China. For a variety of reasons, we are not China. Maybe there are 845 reasons why we are not uh, China because we have 845 known dialects, right? But the second reason is, are you going to be comfortable just being China? Or would you want to be like a US company which has the whole world? I mean, a 18-year-old guy coming out of, or a girl coming out of the United States is thinking of building an app that conquers the world. And if you are a company, if you're a company that thinks of just dominating India, you know, and that's 400, 500 million people, how big can you be in the information economy? So I, I think I relate to what Nitin is saying about building for the world. And I think just counter to the point that uh, the Chinese might be building apps for China and there's a population to absorb, you know, uh, that kind of technology. I think TikTok stands as a counterexample to uh, everything that we were talking about, right? TikTok made a huge market in, in India. It made, it had huge dominance amongst Indian youth and that basically became the the choice, you know, the the, so, the social media of of choice. Um, but I want to talk about like how the protectionist streak of Atmanir Bharata has maybe dented, you know, actually Indian jobs. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of young people were employed at TikTok. And I was on the ground a few weeks ago talking to ex-TikTokers who had been laid off in uh, in mass fashion when TikTok was squeezed out of India. Um, and, and, and a lot of, and there was a real sort of economic fallout for them because they spent years building all of these sk marketable skills for a global app and they had global ambitions for their careers. And essentially, I think, that kind of stalled uh, uh, very, very quickly. So now we have all of this floating population trying to look at whether they want to be employed at TikTok loans uh, in India. And, and honestly, a lot of them are getting back to me saying they don't want to do that because what TikTok managed to do, uh, a lot of maybe Atmanirbhar apps aren't doing as of now. Situation might change. Uh, you bring up an interesting point, Olena, which is TikTok clones. And I want to connect it back to the point that Nitin made, which was very intriguing, which is he said that if this leads to more competition and like, you know, the that's really quizzical for me because can you create more competition by banning someone? Normal view of competition is you create competition by making it easier like, you know, to enter a market by encouraging, like, you know, new players, right? In this case, you seem to be implying that because we banned the dominant player in the space, or at least the dominant players in this space, it opened up competition. 
Certainly. I don't think uh, banning anybody is the great way to introduce competition. But if it's already done, if in the sense that there has been a barrier and it created opportunities for others, you know, I'm not going to be complaining. But more seriously, I think in the information age, in the information economy, many of the things that we were used to in terms of competition law or how competition happens needs to change, right? There's no barrier to entry to anybody creating a Facebook equivalent, but you can't because there are network economics and so on which work. So, uh, and still, I think it's in the public interest for there to be competition to these large tech platforms, right? We need competition to Google. We need competition to Facebook. We need competition to Twitter because not because of economic reasons, but because they have political power and the political power can influence a lot of things which go on in, in a democracy. So to the extent that people have voices, multiple apps, whether it's coup, whether it's uh, something else, it's just a good thing, you know. Uh, just to clarify, you meant K-O-O. I meant K-O-O, the cool app, <laughs> not the cool app. <laughs> well, maybe it's both. But, you know, but I, you know, without putting a value judgment on the policies of these companies, to the extent that people have more than one voice, or more than one platform to get information from, it's great for democracy. Okay, so um, while we've been discussing this, I don't know if this is happening in your area, but it started raining quite heavily here good or bad sign from the heavens um, but I'll just take that as a cue to move on to our next question which is um, I just wanted to throw it out there how do you guys think India's vaccination strategy is panning out interesting question <laughs> I think we talked about this in the first episode uh, I don't want to go back to it but like you know I'm really happy that Nitin is here because uh, back in November of last year, um, Takshashila had put out a really well thought through and researched paper on how India should proceed with its vaccination strategy. They laid out three specific scenarios. One of the scenarios was, should you vaccinate you know, the, the productive people, the young people, uh, the professionals first, or should you vaccinate the most at-risk people first, right? And they had essentially chosen um, the strategy uh, and they explained very well, um, you know, as well, that we should... Uh, vaccinate younger people and the professionals uh, first and then move on to the others. If I remember correctly, we wrote about this. We wrote about this in our daily newsletter, Beyond the First Order, and also in our weekend newsletter. So, Nitin, tell us. See, I think the uh, the strategy which we put together was by, by many people. Hmm. There were um, life scientists, there were lawyers, there were uh, logistics people, there were military officers, uh, there were people with administrative experience, and there were people like me who didn't know much about any of these things. And there were several differences of opinion, right? Uh, but let me cover the, the core ideas first before we come to the difference of opinion part. I think the core idea was to have a limited number of priority vaccinations, about 50 million, right? Uh, and then uh, once you do the 15 million very quickly, then move, move on to vaccinating everybody else. The second uh, thing which we all converged on was that we had to do this quickly. We had to do this within months and not years. But why? The, why? the reason is because, and I think uh, Rohan talked about it uh, before we uh, we came in here, because the disease can become endemic and there can be new strains. So you don't want to be dealing with a COVID epidemic as a perpetual problem. You want to put a lid on the COVID spread quickly so that you can get on with uh, daily life. And there will still be an endemic part of the COVID, which people will start getting it like measles or chickenpox and all of that. And you can you can ta tackle it because it won't spread so widely. Is it too late for that now? I don't think it's too late. 
we still have time, but it's very important to finish the vaccination within three to six months. You know, 600 million people, 800 million people, that number can vary. But, you know, you need to get that kind of size within three to six months or six to eight months if you want to go on the upper limit. Right? Nathan, are you seeing other countries where they are following the strategy a little more closely? No, all countries have weird strategies and no one's following them correctly, right? So I don't think we should be looking at what others are doing because I think that's one thing we've learned in during the COVID experience that you can look at what others are doing, but just don't get too carried away by it, right? But what makes sense for us, right? This is what makes sense for us. So that's what one of the differences of opinion we had was, should the government pay for the whole thing? So there were people like me, traditionally fiscal conservative free market types who said that it makes sense for the government to pay for this because this is a massive uh, investment in public health. It gets your economy going. So if you you know don't pay for it and it takes three to four months, the economic cost is just going to be too large for you to uh, uh, think. So, so people like me said that it should be government paying for the whole thing. But my colleagues, I think on in uh, you know in hindsight, I would sort of agree with them, hmm. who said that you need this public and private model where nothing in India has been done by government alone. Right? You need a national project, which means the government does its part and the private sector does its own part. So you don't block each other. right? You don't want these two uh, public That's and the private happened. elements going at uh, cross purposes, which is currently the situation now because the private has been kept out of the whole game. So I actually have a question about that. I, I mean, I, I, there, there was an estimate I read uh, before I came to this conversation saying that at the pace at which we're vaccinating our population, which is I think we've done about 8 million uh, so far in a, in a month, it's going to take us 17 years to cover 800 million people. I mean, that was that was one estimate, right, according to the pace we're going at. So my question is this, why not actually at this point allow the private sector to come in in a slightly regulated way. You can have whatever price caps you want, or you can have whatever import duty you want to put on 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 uh, you know the, these these private foreign vaccines coming in, and let private citizens like me choose to pay for it, right? And that, in a sense, would speed up our level of vaccination. It would uh, also protect us against you know the disease becoming endemic. So essentially, as a private citizen, it it curbs my choice and my chance to get the vaccination sooner. Yeah, but see, you know, actually, you don't need price caps on private uh, vaccines because if the government is going to vaccinate 300 million people uh, free of cost, then you've already set a price floor, right? No one's going to, uh, you know, no one who who wants a vaccine will be denied a vaccine hmm. because if you think that the private vaccine is too expensive, you can go and get uh, something which the government provides. So there's no need for a price cap. You just need to... Uh, you know, signal to the private uh, healthcare industry that, yeah, you can go and provide uh, vaccines to everybody else, whichever vaccine is approved by the government. Plus, there's a global uh, benchmark also, right? We have a good sense of what these vaccine costs all over the world. So you're not, it's not that like any company is going to charge like 10x the price in India, right? Like, no, and even if they do, I mean, if people can't, don't want to pay 10x that price, they can just go and get the Covishield or the Covaxin which the government is providing, right? So it's not, you don't need to have price caps in a situation like this when the government is the largest procurer of vaccines already. But I think the, the question that we are all trying to figure out is that why is the government insisting that the private sector should not get involved. In fact, today also I read a story which said that till the end of the year, they're not expecting either private stock or to involve the private sector, right? So is, is I mean, let's take OCAM's razor, right? Is it just a supply issue that there just isn't enough supply? So what's the point of involving the private sector? Uh, see, the legitimate reason for doing this would be if there is a supply issue in the sense that the production is just so low 
and you'll have to ration it in some way. What might and be the, the non-legitimate ways? The non-legitimate is, <laughs> I think it's just the way the government has been doing things. If you look at COVID testing, hmm. right? I remember exactly on the March, March 10, 2020, writing an article in the print hmm. saying that the government should not have a monopoly on COVID testing hmm. because this is just too big for us. So allow everybody to do COVID, let private labs come in and do COVID testing because then we'll be able to test a large number of people adequate for the how long challenge. did that take to happen? It took about two and a half months after that. For so it I to guess you've so got bad, another yeah. one and a half months. <laughs> so I guess I guess that's the way because I don't think you can vaccinate a billion people by government methods alone. There's nothing which the government has done for a billion people by itself, right? Everything in India is a mixture of private and Aadhaar. Aadhaar is a yeah, but it's a it's a it's a ID, right? I'm not I'm talking about a service. So for me, the big uh, difference between the two, if you talk the first thing that we spoke about Atmanir Bharata, and now we are talking about vaccination, is there is this big shift that is happening. First, in Atmanir Bharata, the all the apps you can, as you said, either you can ban them, or maybe you don't have to ban them, but you can make life sufficiently difficult for them that you end up creating Indian equivalents. So you start creating permission structures, you start creating certain points of leverage, and then you basically let other people emerge. That's not happening over here. You can't do the same thing on the vaccine side. If you do the same thing to someone like, say, Pfizer, Pfizer, as Olina pointed out, is free to walk away and basically say that, look, we, if you think that you don't want us to sell in India, that's okay. We can go sell everywhere else and we can have a lot of fun. Yeah, that's true. and and But that doesn't affect India also, right? Because you are a big manufacturer of vaccines. You are the world's one of the largest producers of vaccines. So in that sense, uh, you know, that, 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 dichotomy really doesn't exist. There is no reason why the government should not allow private sector uh, vaccinations. It just, I can't, I can't think of any. If supply was an issue, yes, I would have thought that's a serious issue. Because if there's rationing, then I would rather uh, get a public and entity to do the rationing. And supply could have been an issue because I've read reports about the Serum Institute CEO saying that I've got 50 million doses stockpiled. Hmm. And of course, we know that lots of Covaxin has been stockpiled because people aren't taking it. Correct. So it like... But if I have to think, you know, to, to if I have to think and ask and why they might have done this, one reason could be that the fluctuations in supply could be here. Because once everybody, everybody in the world starts, uh, you know, vaccinating, then there could be, you know, fluctuations in the supply. Then although it looks very rosy now, three months from now, when you really need vaccines, you might not Nobody have Nobody thinks anything looks rosy <laughs> right now. <laughs> so from apps and digital platforms to the COVID vaccination strategy, we have typed a bit deeper into India's Ajmanir Bharata strategy and how it's really panning out today. So, well, thank you guys for joining us here today, um, especially Nitin. Thank you for taking the time out and joining us here. Thanks, Anushka. It was really a pleasure to hang out with you guys. Thank you, Anushka. Thank you. Thank you, Anushka. I must also uh, tell you all, one of the epithets that likes often lobbed around at Nitin is that he's a quote-unquote centrist. Is it true, Nitin? Oh. I am a strong believer in free markets, individual freedom, and open society, pluralism. If that makes me a centrist, then so be it. If it makes me a libertarian, so be it. I really don't know. He sounds in, like an intellectual. In today, it sounds, it sounds like a centrist. <laughs> <laughs> in today's world, he's probably a leftist. <laughs> and that's it for episode four of Unofficial Sources. What did you think about it? Did you like it? Did you hate it? You can write to us. Our email is podcast at theken.com. That's podcast at the rate the-ken.com. Regardless, I'll leave it in the show notes and we'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter. 
check us out at the Ken Web. As always, subscribe to this podcast at whichever platform you listen to us on. We'd really appreciate it and it helps us out. Well, we'll see you next fortnight on Unofficial Sources. Thanks for listening. Thank you.